So what comes to your mind when you think of the word humility? Humility. As you're probably aware, humility appears all over the Christian Bible. Uh, If you turn to the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs, for one, you don't have to turn there, but Proverbs 15, we read, The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Later in Proverbs, something similar, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches, honor, and life. In the prophet Zephaniah, you read, seek righteousness, seek humility, and perhaps you'll be hidden on the day of the Lord's anger. If you jump to the New Testament, Ephesians, for instance, says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling with all humility and gentleness with patience bearing with one another in love. Philippians chapter 2, of course, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Colossians 3 says, put on then as God's chosen ones compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And finally, our text for this morning, which is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. So I invite you to turn there with me, 1 Peter 5, and as you can see, I have excerpted the uh, lectionary passage for this morning, and this is the last Sunday that we'll spend in 1 Peter. Pentecost will feature a text in John, and then we'll be in Genesis for a good portion of the summer. So 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're only going to be reading verses 5 through 7. And I invite you, as you're able, to stand for the reading of God's Word. Excuse me. Starting in the second half of verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You may be seated. If you were to run a search for the word humility or humble in the ESV, for instance, you'd find about 40 other examples of verses or passages which mention this concept. Even in texts that don't explicitly use the words humble or humility, um, the concept is clearly present. And so it's, it's obvious that humility, humbleness, is a key virtue in the Christian tradition. So humility is something that's been emphasized by Christians for several millennia, but what does it really mean? What does it really mean? Now, I don't know about you, but my experience with humility is that it's the complete opposite of pride or arrogance or conceit. So if pride is thinking or speaking too positively about oneself, overestimating one's skills, one's importance, etc., then humility in that view, would be on the other side, would be speaking or thinking negatively, some would say realistically, about oneself. If you pick up the sayings of the Desert Fathers, the Egyptian monks, um, the 
prayers of the Puritans in the Valley of Vision, or the writings of Martin Luther, other Reformation-era theologians, you'll see what I mean. So when cast as an individual virtue and vice, pride and humility are seen as opposite extremes on the the self-esteem spectrum. It's either you love yourself too much, or you hate yourself too much. And I know I'm generalizing, but bear with me. Is this really how we are to think, though, of humility? A virtue that's obviously key, that's pivotal, important in the Christian tradition. Is humility really about looking down on yourself? Or is it perhaps about something else? Let me try to get at it from this angle. Where did we get our English word, humility? Well, English is a romance language, which doesn't mean that it is inherently lovey-dovey or romantic, but that it derives from the language of the Romans, which is Latin, of course. Now, Latin had a word, a noun, called hummus. This is not the tasty chickpea spread that you dip... uh, carrots in that our babies are obsessed with. Hummus is a noun which in Latin means ground, earth, soil, or land. Now, Latin had a corresponding adjective, humilis, which means on or near or of the ground, earth, soil, or land. Humilis, as an adjective, came to be associated metaphorically with the lowly in status, Those near the ground, as it were. The poor, the insignificant, the humble. So, humilis in Latin is the ancestor of our English word humility. And it originally meant on, near, or of the ground, the soil. Now, what's striking about this, friends, humus, Humilis, humility, is how related all of these words are to the English word human. Human. If you think back to Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis, God creates the original human, the Adam. And he he, he creates him by getting low to the ground and forming the Adam from the Adamah. It's no accident, friends, that humans are called earthlings. Humans were taken originally from the humus. So by our very name, we are on, near, or of the soil. So I think you could say that human beings are humus beings. And now humus is a word that we use today in soil science, and it means the brown or black, complex material resulting from the decomposition of plant-animal matter, which forms the organic portion of soil. Humus, in other words, is the living, active, constantly eating and being eaten part of soil, which makes it so fertile and so life-giving. Now, probably my favorite theologian, who is my teacher, Norman Wiersba, he has written a book called This Sacred Life in which he describes the life of the soil with a view toward theology and anthropology. And bear with me, friends, as I quote him at length, but his 
His paragraph here is just so rich. He says, if one starts with a seed, plant life begins the moment encasement is broken and connections are made with the complex life of soil. He says, the seed must break out of its shell so that roots can burrow deep into the ground and shoots reach out into the sky. What follows is a continuous, outward, exploratory, groping movement in which relationships with water, minerals, fungi, bacteria, carbon dioxide, sunshine, and pollinators can develop. He says, the plant's continuing growth and decay and the qualities that define its life are entirely dependent on the intimacy, depth, breadth and quality of the relationships it's able to develop. He goes on to say then that the more a plant can engage with the soil, the more resilient it will be. The more it can open and expose itself to soil and sun, insects and atmosphere, fungi and microbes, the more nurture and help it can receive. Rootedness, I'm almost done here, rootedness does not signal confinement. It's the indispensable means through which exploration and discovery occur, and it's the basis for the plant's resilience and health. Humility, friends, isn't about getting down on yourself. But in the words of Eugene Peterson, it's about recognizing your down-to-earthness. It's about accepting your neediness and opening your life like a seed to the sources of life which nurture and support you. The thing is, though, in doing this, in opening your life, you become a source of nurture for others, too. That, friends, is what humility, I think, is all about. Amen. If this is what humility is all about, how might this affect our reading of 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7? That is the question that I plan to engage in the remainder of our time this morning. But before we get into that, friends, let us pray. Lord, thank you so much. For creating us, making us creatures, dependent creatures. I pray that you would teach us a thing or two about humility this morning as we recognize our creatureliness and as we reflect upon how God the Creator, too, became creature for us. Soften our hearts and be with us this morning. Help us to resemble you more. And fill us with your spirit, please, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, First Peter 5. As you can see, our passage is lodged in a larger section. I, I think it, the ESV breaks it up after verse 5, but it's helpful to think of verses 1 through 7 as a discrete unit, and often the commentaries break it up that way. First Peter 5, 1 through 7 is all about uh, living as the household of God. It's about life together. Now, most of this passage is addressed to elders in the community. 
elders who are to function as shepherds who care for the sheep, relationship of, of nurture and being nurtured. But there's also language addressed to the, the youngsters. It says in verse 5, those who are younger. But then midway through verse 5, it says, all of you, clothe yourselves, etc., etc. So in our passage, it is directed at all of the believers in the communities that Peter addressed. And this discussion of humility is in the context of a community that is trying to keep going despite persecution. And Peter uses the language of shepherd and sheep, flock, care, of submitting to one another in the sense of allowing others to nurture and take care of and vice versa. That is the context. So first, verse 5b Peter opens with a metaphor. He says, put on some new clothing. (laughs) Clothe yourselves with humility. This is a pretty common way of speaking and writing in the Greco-Roman world, uh, using the image of clothing, putting on a garment to describe uh, assuming a virtue or a vice, perhaps. But here, the virtue of humility. Clothe yourselves, wrap your whole souls with humility. It's more effective than just saying, be humble. It says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward toward one another. Toward the the elders, the the youngsters, toward all of the believers who made up these congregations in Asia Minor. The idea is that the community, if it was to be resilient... In this context of persecution and hostility, they were to relate to each other with openness, with with nurture, with uh, receptive hearts, acknowledging neediness, etc., etc. What we then see is a quotation from the book of Proverbs. And as I quoted before, Proverbs is a pretty standard uh, book, wisdom literature in the Old Testament, that talks about humility. You'll see a lot of mention of humility in Proverbs. Often, we'll try to look at the context of citations of the Old Testament to get a better idea of what's going on. Proverbs is a little difficult because most of the sayings in Proverbs don't really have context, and that is the case here. It's kind of placed in the midst of various other sayings. But the saying in Proverbs is that God opposes, he resists, generally, the proud, the arrogant, those who think of themselves more highly than they ought, so definitely relating to the definition that I mentioned before. But also, I think, as we'll see later, the arrogant being those who think that they can do life on their own. It's not just about prideful thoughts in the sense of thinking that you're a higher quality human than you are. It's about seeing yourself as a silo, as an island, disconnected from others, not needing the support and nurture of creation and of other creatures, other persons. It's setting yourself up as this freestanding, discreet entity, self-reliant and completely independent. God resists such persons. They are deluded. They are misguided. They they don't understand that they are creatures. But God shows grace, favor, mercy 
toward the humble. Now this, friends, does refer to an attitude of humility, of seeing yourself as a creature in need of constant support. But you think of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes especially, the poor in spirit. You think of those whose circumstances were pushing them into uh, situations where they needed to rely on God for their daily bread. People who were not wealthy, people who were struggling to make a living, the, the poor in spirit and the poor in material. But I think here it applies generally to all who recognize their need of others, that their life cannot go on independently. So first, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. In order for the Christian community to be resilient in this state of persecution and hostility, you need to relate to one another this way, depending on each other, opening yourself up to one another. Next, it says, humble yourselves, verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now, are we to take this humility the same way we took the previous humility at the end of verse 5? Does this humbling of ourselves before God mean opening ourselves up to the sources of nurture that God provides? I think so. I think it also has to include the sense that we mentioned before of setting yourself up in your your mind, thinking that you do not need others. And a key text here is the Sermon on the Mount, especially Luke's version. I don't know if you recall the passage in in Matthew where it says, do not be anxious about anything, about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. Look at the lilies. They're not anxious about these things, yet God clothes them beyond the splendor of Solomon. Look at the birds. They're not anxious, yet God feeds them. They're not storing things up, etc. Well, right before this passage in Luke's gospel, we have the parable of the rich Fool is how the ESV labels it. And there you have this man who enjoys an abundant crop for a given year. His fields bring in uh, an abundance that he had, had not known since he began farming. And so he says, what shall I do? I've got all this harvest. I've got all this produce. What do I do with it? He says, this is what I'll do. I'll I'll tear down the barns that I had and I'll build bigger ones so that I can store up everything that I have. And then once I've done that, I'll I'll say to my soul, the funny instance in scripture of a, a man talking to himself, soul, look, you have produce, nourishment laid up for yourself for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. It says, enjoy an independent self-reliant, completely taken care of, isolated from others' existence. The point is not just that he, he thinks that he is better than others because his fields did so well, but he's closing himself off to the nurture and provision of other people and of God, it seems. And in that text, God appears to him and says, Fool! This very night your soul is required of you. 
and the man, it seems, dies. Then, in Luke's gospel, he says, do not be anxious about anything, what you will eat, drink, what you will wear, etc., but seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be given to you. Friends, here we have a picture of pride as the closing off of oneself from other people, thinking that you do not need the constant, relentless support of God and the other creatures around us. I think this is what Peter is saying here. To position yourselves in relation to God in in a, a posture of dependence, like the lilies, like the birds. To not think that you can control such a harvest, the sources that make your life possible, that you can store it up and do it all on your own. Norman Wiersbe says that humility in a communal context is to deeply engage with where you are and whom you are there with. He says it's, it's to develop the attention, the patience, the commitment required to open yourself to a place, a community. And it's to appreciate how that community intersects with and nurtures, supports your own being. He says it's to see each other for who we are, not for what I want you to be what the market wants you to be. It's to look at each other with with patience, with attention, to dignify the the personhood of those in our community. He says that this kind of patience, this humility, is becoming harder and harder to attain in our fast-paced, superficial world. With all the choices and products and lifestyles available today, at the first sign of annoying behavior or frustrating personality traits, we're tempted to pull away and go somewhere else. As creatures, though, he writes, I would say as humus beings, we're called to look beyond the annoying and ugly just as God looks beyond our ugly and annoying sinfulness and sees creatures in need of his sustaining love. Humility is about relating to one another with the acknowledgement that our life is dependent on the nurture and support of those around us. Humility is living every moment of every day knowing that your every breath is given to you by God. Verse 7 says how we are to function with humility toward God especially. It says humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God by... Casting all of your anxieties on Him by throwing your worries and anxieties, the needs that have not been met yet, by by throwing those upon the One who cares for you. Cares not only for the lilies, not only for the birds of the air, but who cares for you and me, those who bear His very image. There's one author, he's a farmer, Christian, agrarian writer, you could say, 
and about the church, he says, we have to be the most humble, the most open to the voice of God in our midst. He says, meeting together as a community and in humility listening to each other, this seems to be an essential ingredient. One of the texts I mentioned before, probably the most famous humility text for Christians, is Philippians chapter 2. And there, the Apostle Paul writes to Philippian believers who were anxious because Paul was imprisoned. They didn't know what would become of him. And so he writes to console them in their anxiety. And in chapter 2, and I'll turn there and you can too if you'd like, chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul says if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, in other words, if you are connected to Jesus, if you call yourselves Christians, do this. Have the same love, be in full accord and of one mind, do nothing, verse 3, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. He says, look, each of you, not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he presents for us the example of Jesus, the humble Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, those he... Though he was divine, he was God. He did not consider divinity, equality with God, something to be stored up in his new barn. He didn't consider it something that would set him apart from creation so that he could exist forever in the comfortable bosom of the Father, not in the mess of human life. Rather than this, he emptied himself. I think of a seed emptying itself, opening itself. He didn't hoard his divinity, but he opened himself so that he could share it with the world. Being born in the likeness of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the Creator, went all the way into the humus, friends. He assumed a fleshly, dust-formed body, and he died and returned to the dust, too. He went all the way back into the ground for us. And then it says in verses 9 and 10, in language that echoes 1 Peter 5, Therefore God has highly exalted him, given him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, etc., etc. Friends, the humility of Jesus involves the lowering of his status, yes, the giving up of a divine status and, and assuming a lowly human form, but it also involves the acknowledgement of neediness, the opening of himself 
to be a source of nurture for others, and even to be nurtured by others and by God. If you look at the New Testament Gospels, all throughout his earthly life, Jesus involves himself with the neediest of people. Lepers, children, at the time women, the poor, widows, orphans, the disabled, etc., He doesn't just come in, give a speech, and go home. He gets low, and he lives life with such people. In the incarnation, then, God becomes human. Yes. But more strikingly, God becomes humus. He becomes soil animated by breath, a needy organism that relies on other creatures and God. He exemplifies perfect humility, a life that is not isolated, not self-reliant, self-sustaining, but is dependent, other-reliant, and other-sustaining. If this is what humility really means, friends, then what might this mean for us? What kinds of habits or postures might we assume as we move toward humility today? Each life, each dependent, enmeshed, interlaced with others' life, is at its best not when it self-reliantly trudges forward with a sense of independence, but when it opens itself up to others and acknowledges one's need of support and nurture. What we consider productive, valuable, and worth doing, friends, is entirely determined by the fact that we are creatures in constant need of nurture, life, and support. This means that the relationships we share with God and share with others constitute our very being. This means that Not doing as much work as you'd hoped because you shared a conversation with a friend is seen in an entirely different light. Losing precious sleep because your child had a nightmare and needs to be held or consoled is seen in an entirely different light. Noticing in a church perhaps the lack of numerical or financial growth but sensing a depth of intimacy and close friendship seen in an entirely different light. Love the Lord your God with all your soul, strength, etc. Love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, it's always been about relationships. This morning, I challenge you to let humility shuffle your priorities, shuffle your life. May we accept our profound neediness May we open ourselves to God and others, and may we be the humus beings we were destined to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the way in which you created us, not to be self-standing, isolated, and alone, but to be deeply connected. I pray, Lord, that you would push over any barriers, any walls in our hearts that prevent us from 
connection, from relating to others. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to pursue this kind of humility, this down-to-earthness that accepts the, the crowdedness of Christian life. Be with us, Lord, as we continue to worship you this morning. And please inspire us to carry out your will. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.